This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. By the book on BFM 89.9. Hello, everybody, and welcome to By the Book. I'm Lee Chuilin, joined as always by my fellow reader and lover of words, Shamila Ganesan. Hello. And uh, today we have a special guest with us. We have um, the author of The Sweetest Fruits, Monique Trung. Um, Monique, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. Thank you for having me on. Thanks. Um, so, just as a brief introduction of sorts, I suppose, um, the book, The Sweetest Fruits, looks at the life and times of the writer um, and translator, Lafcadio Hearn, uh, but it does so through the lens of three different women, all of whom loved him um, and was a part of his life in some way. And uh, let's start, therefore, with Lafcadio himself. Um, he's really at the heart of the book. What prompted your interest in him and in telling a story around him? Well, I'm a uh, collector of cookbooks, and the more obscure, the better, right? And um, Lafcadio Hearn, very early in his career, wrote what is considered the very first uh, Creole cookbook to be published in the United States. And this was when he was living in New Orleans, Louisiana. Um, and the cookbook was intriguing for many reasons, but uh, mainly because it was so unexpected, because I had heard of him previously um, for what he's, he's more known for, which is being um, an expert on Japanese folklore, ghost stories, fairy tales. So I couldn't really connect the man who wrote the cookbook with the um, expert on Japan. And so it raised all these questions for me. And I wanted to know that journey. And so that's how it began. So that's really interesting because despite that, the fact that what sparked your interest was this particular writer, um, the story itself is in many ways not really, it's almost defined by his absence rather than his presence because it is told uh, from the points of view of three different women, as Lynn said. Was that a conscious decision to, uh, to tell his story in that way? I do not think that um, in the very beginning, um, that was my, um, my sort of intention. <laughs> um, but uh, it just, it, it was a very organic process because honestly, what was more interesting to me <laughs> were the three women in his life. Um, because Lafcadio Hearn in many ways is, very well known, you know, in the sense that he left behind quite a lot of writings, a lot of correspondence. He, there are many, many biographies written about him. And um, in contrast, the women, his mother, his two wives, um, were lesser known figures who just kept on sort of, I, I felt like they were almost waving their hands at the margins of these biographies that I, I was reading uh, and saying, no, no, I have a story. I have a story. And, um, and I, it, it just seemed natural for me to, to just sort of to take their hands and say, okay, let's go with this. <laughs> so, they're, they're very different women, right? Uh, Rosa, um, 
Alethea, Setsu, uh, they're very distinct. They, they enter um, his life in three very distinct periods as well. What was your process of, you know, taking that hand, looking into their lives, telling these stories and making them both distinctive as well as uh, relatable? Well, I think one of the first things um, that I always do with my novels is I think about their voice, you know, or their voices. Um, and I, I prefer to write in the first person voice. And it really helps to sort of kind of for me to, to sketch out and to make more concrete um, um, gradually more and more concrete the the um, characters that I'm dealing with um, and for example with Rosa his mother who um, was born on uh, one of the Ionian islands off of Greece I traveled to the the island where she gave birth to Lafcadio it's called Lafcada and and I given the fact that I, I knew that she did not have a formal education, she, her life was very um, sort of uh, limited by her family life and her life within the church. All that, and then sort of the, the, the geography of the islands, I felt like that really must have shaped her early years. You know, so with each character, um, that that sort of became the process. And I, I used to live in Ohio, so Alethea uh, is actually the only character where I didn't have to travel to her to her locale to kind of understand. With Setsu, I went to um, I went to Japan on a fellowship. I went to the little. Oh, it's not so little at all. Uh, I went to the town where she and Lafcadio met. And uh, and that is all, I think, um, incredibly important to the process of creating these characters, just really to understand the even just the, the quality of the sunlight, <laughs> you know, the quality of, of what was what was growing, what was blooming, what was surrounding them, which in that sense had not changed. Do you know, even though it's a historical novel, I'm writing in the 2000s, you know, and yet I felt like that would be our sort of connecting points. Now, alongside that, distinctive sense of place. Um, one of the other things that I really enjoyed in your story um, is the way you use language and the role that language itself plays. Um, it plays a big part in, in bringing the characters to life, yes, uh, but also in terms of how it changes depending on where they are and even this idea of an ownership of language. Uh, talk to us about that, uh, the role of language in your novel. With uh, two of my characters, there was um, quite a, a challenge for me as a writer to, to think through the way that they would use language. And the two characters I'm, I'm uh, referring to are Rosa and Alethea. Because Rosa, his mother, and Alethea, his first wife, um, they were not... Um, they did not have access to the written word. 
you know. Um, and I, I actually, I prefer to use that sort of phrasing as opposed to saying that they were illiterate. Um, because I think illiteracy is really sort of a label that doesn't talk about um, the denial of access to an education that is um, at work, you know, in the lives of these characters. And, you know, when I say it was a challenge, because my, well, clearly, you know, my whole life is, is the written word, you know, and my relationship to language is, is so... Um, the foundation is the written word. So what, how does one tell one's own story when it's not, when that foundation is not present? Um, and the answer, the short answer is that it is not diminished. It is just different. And you have to put yourself, I think, as a writer into a mindset where, where language is, is, uh, is about sound, right? And not necessarily what it looks like on the physical page. And I mean, just that's, that's a very sort of um, simple example, but the, I think the sound aspect of it is, is, is actually a very good example of that. We're speaking today with Monique Trung, who is author, uh, the author of The Sweetest Fruits. Her other books include uh, The Book of Salt, Bitter in the Mouth. Uh, but today we are focusing on the, the story and the language and uh, just the experience of writing The Sweetest Fruits. Uh, we'd like to know if you've read it. Um, are you someone who enjoys historical fiction, um, works that are centered in history, you can let us know by WhatsApping 018-789-8899. You can also tweet us at BFM Radio. Best Flipping Moments, BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Hello, everybody. You are listening to Buy the Book with Lynn and Sharmila. We are joined today by author Monique Trung, and we're talking about her latest book, The Sweetest Fruits. And, um, Earlier, we we I kind of ran through your other titles, Monique, and there is a theme here of taste, right? The Book of Salt, Bitter in the Mouth, Now Sweetest. And food is also um, a tremendously important motif in the book, not just the experience of eating it, but I felt that it was a very sensorial thing. There's a lot about cooking. There's a lot about um, what what different additions to food might mean for individuals. And who individuals. food belongs to. Yes, who food belongs to. Um, and even, I think, how how food shapes the way we think about ourselves. Um, and I was curious about, you know, from your point of view, how do you use food to tell stories? Why has it been such a recurring motif? Mm. You know, sometimes I, I like to push back when folks tell me that my uh, novels are about food. And I push back by saying, actually, my novels are about hunger, right? Because that's, that's the flip side of, of um, food and the sensorial and, and sort of the, the lusciousness of some of the descriptions because you, I, I truly believe that you cannot understand all of that until you have 
some understanding of its opposite, which is hunger, right? And I'm, and of course, you know, uh, I mean that not in necessarily the the physical sense of hunger, but sort of the spiritual hunger, the emotional hunger, all the things that food is often um, sort of reached for in order to, to satisfy and to satiate. And, and really, that's almost an impossible ask of, of um, a bowl or a dish of something, right? And I think for me, uh, having been uh, a refugee to the United States from Vietnam, um, food uh, was, was very early on in my life, it played that role. It, it was a way to try to access a piece of something that had been lost, you know, a way of life, a country, um, just a whole sort of sense of comfort. And so this is why, this is why I say my books are about hunger. <laughs> no, I, I think I definitely feel that um, a sense of longing and a sense of emptiness as well in this book. Um, and on that note of talking about opposites or, or two sides of a coin, uh, the novel also explores this idea of um, really only being able to tell the story of another person's life through the lens of your own story. Uh, talk to us about that, especially as a writer whose works um, are often rooted in history. I think um, this was something that I, you know, that we had touched on um, previously about this idea that Lafcadio Hearn was um, a very well-known figure, you know, in terms of his presence in the historical archives, right? Um, uh, and he's he's sort of presented as as sort of the great man of literature. And, and that kind of raising someone up on a pedestal, uh, necessarily means that there are some, there are folks below him, right? And the folks below him are often, um, women. <laughs> the women who have supported him have sort of, uh, have sort of fed his emotional life, and I use the word, you know, the verb to feed very consciously. Um, and, you know, and yet their stories have not um, been documented as such. And, and I really do think that, that what we then have um, is only a partial history, right? And historical fiction is a way, one way, of trying to fill in an archive, <laughs> you know? Um, yes, through the lens of fiction. Um, but yet, what do we have at this point often for the stories of the marginalized, the subaltern, the you know the enslaved, it it is almost uh, a a disruptive revolutionary act to reach into history and say I see it is empty and I refuse this emptiness. 
So on that note, uh, one thing that I, I felt quite keenly while reading the book was uh, in some ways the amount of white privilege that is inherent in the character um, of Lafcadio and, and um, I think made even more complicated by the fact that he often does not seem to recognize that. It falls to the women to recognize it and to, in fact, feel the effects of it. Um, and that can also complicate the the notion of relatability when it comes to his character. Uh, how did you work through this in your writing of him? Mm. Wow. Well, here's the uncomfortable truth, right? That um, of all the characters in The Sweetest Fruits, in a way, uh, you could say I'm closest to Lafcadio Hearn <laughs> in the sense that we're both storytellers and we do, we do take from the folks around us, from our community, from our family. We, that's what happens when you are a storyteller. You do take, you know, but how do you um, then acknowledge what you've done? That's where I think Lafcadio Hearn and someone uh, like myself uh, are different, right? And so, as I was writing the book, it wasn't so much that I felt so um, so separate and apart from him. I recognized myself, you know, in some of what he's done. Um, I think about when I went to Japan, you know, to do my research. I did not have access to the Japanese language, same as Lafcadia. Right. And he always uh, in his life there used translators and interpreters. Right. He um, at least his biographers preferred not to really acknowledge that or just in passing. It took me so many books of, uh, of reading books about him to understand that he did not have fluency. This is how around that subject it was written, you know. And for me, it, um, I I was talking about, you know, being in Japan for the fellowships, for the fellowship. And I realized how dependent I was on my uh, friends there and my acquaintances there who did clearly have access. Right. And I could only sort of uh, understand the world through them. And if they chose to interpret something differently than what was happening, I wouldn't know, right? And so this is why, you know, I think about how Setsu, his wife, who was the main interpreter in, in his day-to-day -day life, how much control she could have had, right? How much power. And yet that's not how she's written about in history. She's written about as someone who is um, illiterate in English. Well, Bafkadio was essentially illiterate in Japanese, you know? So mm. it's, it's, um, it's, uh, it, it's really how you choose to, to sort of look at these, um, at these stories and who's, lenses you're looking through. Monique, your novel 
is actually out at a particularly interesting time, right? Um, with all of these conversations happening uh, in the U.S., but also I think in a larger sense about uh, Black Lives Matters, um, anti-Asian hate crimes, and so on. What do you think your novel adds to these discussions? This this question is actually um, always an interesting one, I think, for most authors, especially those who ha- take a very long time, like I do, to write a book. So we begin a book at a particular moment in time, in history. And then by the time we're done, the world, uh, especially uh, I feel with this book, has, has changed uh, 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 in a um, in a way that we couldn't have anticipated. So, what does that mean for for me uh, and this book? I started this book during the Obama administration, <laughs> during a time when we uh, it did feel hopeful in the United States. It felt like the different races and ethnicities were. It wasn't post racial, but it was certainly a moment where we felt a certain kind of uh, ability to sit down at perhaps the same table and, and really have a, a discussion about what connects us and what d- still divides us. Um, by the time this book came out, right now, certainly I would not say that that is the prevailing feelings within the United States. It feels exactly the opposite, right? Um, and... Um, it is so when I look at this book now, I think about these three women who are so different in terms of race and geography and nationality. What do they have to say to us now? You know, by being in the same book, being part of the same narrative. And that's precisely that, that they are in the same narrative, that what we would think of being separate people, separate lives, are actually not separate, you know, are actually interconnected. And the history is there. We just have to find it, recognize it, and and understand that we, you know, perhaps the thing that does connect us with these women, it's, it's Lafcadia Horn. It's white privilege, you know. Um, <laughs> But that doesn't necessarily define us, you know. Um, so, yes, I think that's that's my answer. Monique, we wanted to close off with um, a question that is often unpopular with the authors that we speak to, which is what's next? I, I know that it's not a question that everybody likes answering, but um, I'm curious to know, you know, what's next for you? What are you currently working on, interested in? Ah, well... Um, I, uh, it's probably too soon to mention this, but let's, let's answer this, um, by saying that I've been reading a a lot of children's books recently, and this may or may not mean that I've written one, (laughs) but I'll I'll tell you why that, um, children's books are, are, uh, interesting to me right now because I've you know as you know in the US um, you know we've are going through um, a lot of anti-Asian violence 
and and um, you know, especially uh, on social media, um, there is the hashtag stop AAPI hate, right? Which to me, um, I absolutely understand, but to me, the question is how, right? It's I, you just can't say to people stop. The question is how, and I I think about the young. Generation, the the generation who's growing up now. How do we reach out and help them live a life that will be um, filled with a certain pride, a certain kind of strength and power, you know? And um, so this is why I'm thinking about literature for young folks right now. Monique, thank you so much for speaking with us today and for taking the time. Thank you so much for having me on. It was a huge pleasure for me. You just heard Monique Trung, who is um, an author, particularly of The Sweetest Fruits, which is her latest novel and the one in which uh, we focused on. Her other books include The Book of Salt, Bitter in the Mouth. Uh, we want to know, have you read any of Monique's works? Are you a fan of um, historical works, historical fiction? You can let us know. Uh, WhatsApp us 018-789-8899. Tweet us at BFM Radio. Write to us at buythebook at bfm.my. And that brings us to footnotes. Uh, so what we usually do after we speak with an author is we do sort of a mini review of the book that we just spoke about. So um, this is about The Sweetest Fruits by Monique Trung. Um, and we touched on it very briefly earlier. But um, just to say that the story is an interesting one because it's not necessarily um, it's not necessarily a, a narrative of my name is Lovecardio and I was born in, you know. Um, and instead, as we said, you kind of really get a sense of the man through the women in his life. And uh, we've talked about the three main characters. One, basically his two wives and his mom, whom he never really knew. Uh, but also the book has interludes, right? Chapters from his biographer, uh, uh, Elizabeth Bislin. So that's just worth mentioning that it's more than the three characters. There's also actually a fourth. Yes. Yeah, so I'm glad you brought that up because, um, you know, the book has been sort of uh, promoted and represented as three women. But but really, the frame for all of this is Elizabeth Bislin Wetmore, who wrote Lafcadio Hearn's um, one of his biographies. She was also um, one of the people who tried to complete the Around the World in 80 Days Challenge with Nellie Bly, which I completely didn't realize until I got to the end of the book. So um, it's it's interesting and I actually love the structure and I love the frame of the different women because you almost feel like you're reading about three different people through their eyes. Um, the way it's narrated is different. The feel and the the, the tone and, and the way they see him is different as well. Um, so it's not a book that I found difficult to read because it's constantly shifting and there's always something to look forward to. Um, I think the the challenges I had with the book were more to do with the fact that you have to really be engaged with all three women. Otherwise, at some points, you'll find your attention wavering. Uh, so 
the more I think about the book and the experience of reading it, the more I appreciated what wasn't told as much as what was. Um, and I think that that was something that I, I enjoyed tremendously the ways in which there are intentional gaps left in each person's understanding, for example, of Love Cardio Hearn, which is, um, very reflective and representative of real relationships, right? We will only know somebody through our experience, our very personal experience of them. Um, and, Everything is also written in a uh, retrospective sense. Um, they are all writing after his passing, except for um, his mother, who is writing knowing, or, or she's not even writing, actually. She's narrating a story, narrating a letter uh, to somebody that she knows she will probably never see again. So there's a constant sense of loss that permeates the book. And that was more, that was really my favorite part of it. Um, the fact that uh, there was a melancholia and so because of that, the issue of engaging with each individual um, narrator wasn't so much an issue for me because I was more interested in, I suppose, the the differing perceptions and in comparing the ways of, for example, particularly his wives, uh, the different ways that they experienced him at different points in his life. So when I say that um, the engagement, I think it's because it is the novel is divided into thirds. So the first mm -hmm. third is the mother, Rosa. The second third is uh, his first wife, Alethea. Uh, and the third third is um, Setsu and, and his life in Japan. And I could tell where my attention dips and rises. Uh, so I think that was where I knew which characters I hooked on to more. It, it may also be actually just the spaces, the lives, the locations, the food, because I think one thing that I love about the book is that Monique does a great job of bringing these things to life. The way a place smells, the way a place mm. looks, um, the way people sound in a particular location. So you have the Ionian Islands of the Mediterranean, then you have Cincinnati, um, and then you have Japan. So I think each of these kept me going because also in a year where I haven't been anywhere, it was great to be able to travel and sort of live vicariously through this book. Um, I just, I think sometimes I wish that I was as invested in the women as I was in Lafcadio and where the women were. Yeah, I, I can understand that. I think um, the, to your point about the different places, I felt that each was very vivid um, and also imbued with the particular personality of the narrator and um, their experience of what it's like to live in essentially their home. Um, because with Lafcadio, there is a sense each time that he is moving, right? Um, so when he encounters and uh, marries Alethea, it, it is at a point in time where he's gone to America. He's making his name as a journalist. Um, when he meets and marries Setsu, he's gone to Japan to teach. And so I think a story told through his lens, and it's something that uh, is acknowledged in the afterword, would necessarily be very exotic, would necessarily see these places as, um, you know, exotic locales and write about and describe them in those ways. Um, whereas because you have narrators who've lived there, who instead are seeing him as the outsider coming in, they regard him in a way with that exotic lens, but talk about their homes in a very lived in, um, very very grounded way. So I think that that contributed to the locales being so lovely to read. Um, I think 
also the opacity of the narrator is an important thing when it comes to the engagement. Because, for example, um, with with Rosa, his mom, there is a real emotional emotionality to it. There's a real push because she's writing to her baby. She's writing to somebody who's not yet formed. Um, with his with his first wife, um, he left her. So, um, you know, you're, you're looking at it through that lens. And then with Setsu, I think she is the most opaque narrator of all because it takes several goes um, for you to actually, in some cases, understand what it is that she's trying to tell you about her own life, about her own beliefs uh, when it comes to, for example, um, fidelity, fidelity in a relationship. So the opaqueness and also the the extremely unreliable quality of the narration, which isn't a bad thing, because none of them are actually narrating this directly to us. All of the women are sort of telling a version of the truth to someone else. So there are all of these layers of storytelling and what's real, what's not, whose lens are we getting about something, which actually makes all of this very, very interesting. Um, for me, I think in the case of Setsu, uh, there were one too many layers between me and her. And mm. I never felt like I quite understood her um, the way I did the other two women. That said, um, you know, that's that's also, I think, the significant portion of Lovecadio's life. And it's what we all know him for. So Setsu's portion serves to make, I think, the most of him. You get to know him the best in her story. So overall, I mean... I I thought that it was a very um it was a very intelligent book um as I think you can perhaps tell from the way that we're talking about it with all these different layers with all these different elements of uh narration and who gets to tell whose story um I also thought that it was it it kind of stayed with me for a few days after I I kept kind of going about my day and then thinking about thinking about Lafcadio Hearn's life and works, uh, thinking about the women and their voices. Um, and I think that is the mark of a story well told, even if, um, as we say, it. I think the way that the chapters function mean that you might not have the most even reading experience as you go through the novel. And I think... For a book like this, that sounds like it has so much, so much complexity baked in, it's actually not a huge novel and it's not a hugely difficult novel to read. Uh, the language is beautiful, but it's also, it's also easy to read, which is a compliment. Um, it's, it sort of keeps you going. You, you can, you, you get taken into the story quite quickly. And I enjoyed that a lot. Um, I would, I would say, you know, if you're someone who enjoys um, complex storytelling, if you enjoy hearing these sort of multiple voices, particularly if you enjoy books that uh, take you on a journey, I think this is such a great read. So we've been talking today about The Sweetest Fruits by Monique Trung. If you missed it, we spoke with her actually earlier on in our show about the uh, the writing process, what interested her about this particular story that she wanted to tell. Uh, but let us know, have you read the book? Is historical fiction something that interests you? You can WhatsApp us 018-789-8899 and of course tweet us at BFM Radio and write to us at buythebook at bfm.my.
Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.